Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus once again, Exodus 21. And as I noted earlier, we're going to be looking at a few select passages in 21 and 22, as well as chapter 23 tonight. We come tonight to a a section of Exodus that deals with civil laws given to the people of Israel to govern their national life together. Now, some of you may be familiar with this idea, others may not, but in Reformed and Presbyterian theology, really in all classic Christian theology, there is this understanding of what's called the threefold division of the law, particularly when we're trying to wrap our heads around many of these Old Testament instructions. How should we understand them? Do they apply today? And the classic understanding is that the Old Testament laws fall into one of three categories, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. Some of the laws in the Old Testament are ceremonial laws pertaining to worship in the temple and tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the Old Covenant festal calendar and priesthood and so forth. Those laws were fulfilled in Christ, the once-for-all perfect sacrifice, and they're no longer observed by the Christian church. Now, other laws, like the ones we're looking at tonight, fall into the civil law category. That is, they were laws governing the civic life of Old Covenant Israel, a theocratic kingdom that no longer exists. These civil laws served their purposes for a time to govern that nation as a church under age, as our Westminster Confession so put, puts it, and I think quite a lovely phrase there, the church under age. But their purpose has been served and fulfilled. As our confession says, these laws expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So, even though the United States or India or France or the Gambia are not governed by Old Testament civil code, there may still be instructive benefit, wisdom, and insight for ordering social life that we can derive from them. And that's what that little phrase, general equity, means there in the Westminster Confession. And that's part of what we're doing tonight. Are there not applicatory principles that we can derive from these Old Testament civil laws? So there's your second category. And then the third category, of course, of law for those Old Testament laws is what we call the moral law. These are the laws that are perpetually binding for all time. The Ten Commandments are the most obvious example of that category of moral law. They still abide. They didn't simply disappear with the coming of Christ. He fulfilled them, yes, and transformed them to some degree, amplified them, we might say. But they still have bearing on the life of God's people, the way specific laws about, say, temple sacrifice and specific laws about servants and oxen in Israel do not have bearing on God's people today. So moral Civil, ceremonial, that's your threefold division of the Old Testament laws. Some laws are moral law, others ceremonial, still others civil, like the ones we're studying tonight, having to do with governing Israel's civic life together. However, and, I, and I, it's helpful to see this, I think, what we see in the laws before us tonight is the application of the principles of the Ten Commandments to some particular circumstances in the life of Israel. 
these instructions that we read here are not random or arbitrary, but rather they are applications of God's moral law, the ten words. And so these civic laws are particular, specific, contextual applications for Israel of God's moral norms. It's a helpful way to think about it, I think. And as we've come to the second half of Exodus, to the less familiar half, as we've said before, there really is a great deal of rich doctrine and gospel truth here. We've said that in some instances we'll be taking a look at just a few verses, but other times we'll be studying these large chunks, even several chapters at a time, so as not to lose the forest for the trees. Well, tonight is one of those occasions. We're going to take a look at some of the big themes present in these civil laws in chapters 21 through 23. We won't read all of it, but we will read a few representative portions. So with that, let's read God's word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing. First, I'm going to read from chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 17. Follow along as I read aloud. God's holy word. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Then look over to chapter 22 with me. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. Chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution." But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. Then finally, again in chapter 22, let's read verses 21 through 31. Verses 21 through 31 in chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. 
If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day it shall be given to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Amen. Thus far God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study together his word tonight. Lord, this is your word, and we need it. Grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination, we ask, so that we may better and rightly understand what it is that we read and study this evening. May we hear your voice and receive life through this, your word. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen. One of my pastors years ago pointed it out, and I think it's right, that one of our biggest desires or instincts that we have as humans, one of the biggest emotional tugs we have, if you like, is the need to fit in. Now that takes different forms for different people, no doubt, but in general, in general, we have this desire for inclusion, to be well thought of and accepted by others, or at the very least, not to be hated, but respected, appreciated approved of in some sense. And while that desire in of itself is not necessarily sinful, that desire can sometimes put us at odds with our calling as God's people. Especially when God's word calls us one way, but in order to gain the approval of our neighbors, we would need to think or live in an entirely different way. Now, this has often been referred to as the subversive, often countercultural values of the kingdom of God. We're called to live according to values and a way of life that is often not popular, not in vogue with the world around us. And it's part of our calling to live as Christ's disciples. Well, this is no new thing, brothers and sisters. Israel had such a calling too. One of the ideas that I hope you've noticed and we've attempted to highlight it in recent weeks as we've been making our way through Exodus is this idea of distinction. Distinction. Israel, in many ways, is called to be distinct, to be different from her surrounding pagan neighbors, different in her worship, different in her whole lifestyle and values. And so these terms that we encounter, things like distinction, difference, holiness, consecration, being not conformed to the pattern of this world, these are terms or phrases or expressions which are all over the scripture in their various places, and these are descriptors of the people of God and our manners of living to which God's people have always been called in every age. And we're starting to see this in Israel, her dietary code, how they dressed, how they worshipped, even their governing laws. They were to be different because, Exodus 22, verse 31, they were consecrated to God, set apart unto him. I like how one commentator put it. He said, God's agenda, 
then and now, is the holiness of the life of his people. Not just privately and individually, but rather corporately, collectively, together, so that standing out from the world, we might bear witness to it of the glory and grace of our great God who is at work among us. Close quote. And so before we talk about the broad principles from this passage, passages that are rooted in God's character and his perpetual moral law that have bearing on our lives today, let's take just a few moments and look at some of these statutes, some of these civil laws, and see how they are indeed all rooted in and stem from the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. So first, let's think about how the civil laws are rooted. These civil laws are rooted in the Ten Commandments. Notice, first of all, in verses 12 through 32 of chapter 21. There is an array of laws dealing with violence and murder or accidental death or injury. And really, those situational laws are just applications of the teaching of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. The sixth commandment's teaching regarding the inherent value and dignity of human life. Because mankind, male and female, is made in the image of God, and therefore life is worth cherishing and protecting. Or, chapter 21, verse 33, all the way through chapter 22, verse 15. These laws, these various regulations, are dealing with scenarios in which Israelites were required to make restitution for damaged or stolen property. Now, these codes all stem from the Eighth Commandment, ultimately. You shall not steal. If your neighbor suffers loss because of our negligence or our wrongful action, well, we have an obligation to make it right. The seventh commandment is also here. Right? The seventh commandment specifies adultery, but as we talked about it in our study of the seventh commandment, it more broadly governs marriage itself, and it forbids any kind of sexual sin. So, chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, and again in verse 19, The civil law is applying the seventh commandment as it's giving these proscriptions against sexual sin. Chapter 22, verses 18 and 20. Now, what's that about? What's happening there? Well, it's about worship. Laws against false worship and idolatry. And so these civil laws are an application of the first and second commandments in particular. Also, the fifth commandment shows up. Honor your father and your mother. Remember that. That commandment has broader application than just one's biological mother and father, but it has implications in our relations with superiors and inferiors, implications for the elderly in society, our forefathers in the faith, our governing rulers, those under our care for whom we are responsible, and more beyond that. And so chapter 22, verses 21 through 24, God reminds his people not to pray upon the sojourner who has come to live as a foreigner among them, nor are they to mistreat the widow or the orphan. The strong are to care for the weak, you see, not abuse them, not exploit them, not take advantage of them, but positively shield them, defend them, care for them, protect them. It's a fifth commandment principle. Or later on in chapter 22, verses 25 through 28, here we see applications of the 10th commandment and the 8th commandment regarding covetousness and stealing. Those verses are being applied to make sure that the poor are not the victims of predatory lending. We mentioned those verses back when we studied the Eighth Commandment. Then, chapter 22, verse 28, 
we see both the first and the fifth commandments in play. Don't take God's name in vain, don't revile him, and don't curse a ruler over you. There's a fifth commandment idea in play there about superiors. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, that's about bearing false witness, applying the ninth commandment to some specific situations. And on and on and on we could go, pointing to all the statutes and rules from these passages in chapters 21 through 23 and showing how far from random or arbitrary, they are all rooted in one or more of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And also, as we've emphasized from time to time, God's law has implications for his people corporately. God is not interested merely in his people's personal and individualized holiness, though he is interested in that, most certainly. But he is interested also in their collective, corporate, together holiness as well. And since these laws were for Israel's civic life, we can safely say that God's moral law has implications for human society as a whole. The law of God has much to say about ethics and public life. This has long been the understanding of much of the Reformed tradition. And in various different instances and situations throughout history, in different places, oftentimes the Christian church had a very close relationship with the civil magistrate in terms of shaping civil laws and public policy and striving to shape social morality and public ethics. And our point here tonight and in this text is not to get into the debate or address the question of what is the best or worst or most ideal arrangement for the church's relationship to the state per se. That's a discussion for another time. But actually, to take one step back from that question and to address a different, though very common and dreadful assumption that is pervasive in our day. And that assumption that we're addressing is this. Morality is an inherently private matter. Ethics is a wholly individual enterprise. Social norms ought to be shaped by public opinion. Morality is private and subjective. Public policy ought to be determined by trustworthy scientific results and general consensus. Keep your religion to yourself. Believe whatever you want, but it has no place in the public square. That's the attitude, the mentality the often unspoken assumption of Western society now, isn't it? Well, I say often unspoken, but it's becoming more and more quite spoken, isn't it? But what seems to be the attitude of the text? What's the attitude of God as it pertains to his decreed ethics? We say this not to be pedantic, not not even to be edgy or provocative, but rather to point out that this is the intellectual water in which we are swimming, And and like a fish in water, too many times we aren't even aware of our surrounding conditions. We just assume our existence is what it is. Our world assumes, insists even, that morality is a private thing. That ethics are shaped by public consensus. And that really, if we're being honest here, Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity in particular, is regressive, oppressive, and bigoted. And the sooner we can get rid of the, the culture of this outdated, outmoded, retrograde religious shackle, the better. We are at a social and philosophical point in our time, in our lives, that to hold to traditional biblical views regarding marriage, human sexuality, and gender is to be the ethical equivalent of a white supremacist. 
that's how the world views you, brother and sister. If you hold Bible-believing views about marriage, sexuality, and gender that your grandparents would have assumed nonchalantly, the wider secular Western world views you as the ethical equivalent of a white supremacist. What we need is freedom from religion. Morality is private, not public. Religion is for the individual, not the corporate masses. And the Bible is bad news. That's what's reflected in the cultural temperature. And against all of that, God, in Holy Scripture, would speak into such a society's mindset and say, no. I love how one commentator put it. The civil laws that govern Israel's national life arise out of the principles of his moral law. The universal moral standard summarized in the Ten Commandments and written on all our hearts and consciences by nature. These are not the arbitrary dictates of popular opinion imposed upon Israel. These are not the reflections of the biased agenda of a ruling governmental elite. These are the manifest application of an ethical standard under the rule of which everyone lives. The only objective norm, both for personal ethics and for public life, is the law of God given to us in Holy Scripture. Close quote. Certainly, that's a very unpopular notion, that quote that I just read but one which we in the church must insist on in our understanding and discipleship, especially given the pressures and the temptations of the radically individualized era in which we live. Far from being constrained to the realm of the private, religion, biblical religion, says a very great deal, indeed, regarding public life and society. (laughs) There it is again. God's people called to be distinct, countercultural, even in the way we think about ethics and life and society, to say nothing of practice. Now, as we mentioned earlier, although Israel's civic code does not apply exactly to the United States as it did to Israel, there are nevertheless biblical and eternal principles embedded in these laws that remain vital for us to understand and embrace because they are laws, they are regulations reflecting the character of God himself. And what are some of those principles? Well, various commentators took a variety of approaches. You'll be entirely unsurprised to learn. But one common one that emerged was highlighting these four big themes. And the first is that God is a God of life. God is a God of life. We see this in all kinds of places in this passage. The prohibition against forced slavery in chapter 22, verse 16. The responsibility to look after foreigners and widows and orphans in chapter 22, verses 21 to 24. And there's more besides. But let's zero in on 21, verses 22 to 25. It's about harm or potential injury happening to an unborn child. Chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. If there's some sort of physical altercation and a woman goes into labor prematurely, but thankfully the baby is unharmed, then a fine is imposed upon the guilty party as determined by the pregnant woman's husband. But look at verse 23. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You see there how the civil law reckons the status or standing of the unborn child. Built right into the law of God is an affirmation of the full dignity of the unborn and a recognition that to kill a child in the womb is murder 
and an appropriate punishment should follow. Now, what a word this is. In a time and a world such as ours, when life in the womb is routinely ended in our culture on a ghastly scale, at a time when violence and murder are so commonplace that when we hear of a shooting, not even a mass shooting, just a murder, some neighborhood, some corner store, guy got shot, how do we react? We shrug. A murder has taken place and we shrug it off. In a world of the detestable and global practice of human trafficking, abduction of women and girls into forced prostitution, a sex slave trade at such a scale that would make other slave trades look paltry by comparison. Against such a backdrop of darkness and wickedness, the word of God once again unabashedly declares that every human life is sacred and that God calls us to uphold, preserve, defend, protect, and promote human dignity, life, and its inherent worth in every place and at every stage. That's one broad principle that we see here in these various regulations from these three chapters tonight. The God of life. These various laws reflect the character of God himself. Then secondly, in these various laws that reflect God's character, we see also that God is a God of justice. He is a just God who rules with just judgment. Another word that we might use is equity, fairness. The justice that he renders is equitable. We won't go over them again, but remember those handful of laws that we mentioned about restitution? A person steals something. A person damages somebody else's goods or property, or they they suffer loss in some way, God's law demands that the offending party make it right. Equity, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, etc. If you've done something sinful, deliberately or just through plain old negligence, the requisite penalty for your part shall be fair. Or, depending on the situation, you may need to make it right and pay them back in some form. Equity. A matter of justice. And this principle is no mere outmoded Old Testament notion. We see it in the New Testament as well. This this matter of ethics is for us, friends. This is something we mention when we study the Eighth Commandment. Remember Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man in Luke chapter 19. After all the swindling and defrauding of people that he had done for years, he meets the Lord Jesus His soul is regenerated. He repents. He comes to faith. He embraces Christ by faith. Luke 19, verse 8, he says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus makes restitution. Restitution, making amends. That's an important component of our repentance that we New Testament Christians would do well to think on, perhaps more than we do. We've repented to God, we've confessed our sin, we've fled to Christ for mercy, and in him we find forgiveness, we find pardon and eternal pardon, full and free. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But wherever possible, should we not seek to make this just, equitable, right, and fair to our neighbor, the neighbor against whom we've sinned or wronged, wherever possible, it was part of the civic order of Old Testament Israel And it continues to be part of the pattern of repentance for God's people today. Reconciliation first to God, that vertical, as we sometimes say, vertical reconciliation. But then also there's a horizontal dimension too, isn't there? Making amends one with another, the one against whom I may have sinned. 
God's character is reflected in his laws, and he is a God of justice. That's the second thing. Then thirdly, alongside justice, we also see God's character and his laws, and we see that he is a God with a heart for the weak, the vulnerable. This is one of those areas where an old Latin proverb comes in very handy. Many of you likely know it. Abusus non tolit usum. What does that mean? Abuse does not negate or cancel use. In other words, the misuse of something is no argument against its proper use. Now, I know, I know, trust me. Words like justice and marginalized and oppressed and equity, I know, those are buzzwords that get slapped onto anything and everything these days. These are notions that are entirely abused by theological liberals and in other circles. They're so overused that they've become practically meaningless in our present discourse, such that we've become cynical and our eyes start to glaze over whenever we begin to hear these words. But let's be careful, friends. Let's be careful. Cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit, nor a virtue for a Christian. Discernment, yes, yes, discernment. But just because certain bad actors use and abuse certain words or concepts does not negate their right use. Just because theological scoundrels abuse words like justice in order to virtue signal or emotionally manipulate tender-hearted people, that does not mean that God does not care about the socially marginalized or have a heart for true justice, and it does not mean that we shouldn't care either. Exodus 22, verse 21. Also chapter 23, verse 9. That same law gets repeated. Repetition matters whenever you're reading the Old Testament. It matters all over the Bible, but particularly so in the Old Testament. Repetition in the Hebrew Scriptures is significant. It's their version of underline, italics, and bold font. Chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Israel knows what it's like to be a sojourner in a land not their own. And it can be rotten. So don't mistreat the sojourner, God says. You've been in their shoes, Israel. God has a heart for the vulnerable. His people are often a suffering people. So do not abuse the weak, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. It's a mark of the people of God. It's a mark of redeemed hearts. We'll come back to that in a minute. Psalm 146, it's absolute, one of my absolute favorite psalms. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And it's a New Testament characteristic as well, a mark of a regenerate people. James 1, verse 27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There it is again, to be unstained from the world, distinct, countercultural. So many in the church want to be countercultural according to the values of the kingdom of God. That's good. Our society exploits and abuses weak and vulnerable people all the time. God's people are called to reflect the heart of our Father, to care for the weak and the marginal and the vulnerable around us, particularly within the bounds of God's church. So that's the third thing. And then fourthly and finally, we see the motivations for God's people 
to follow God's laws. Really, the, the fifth point, if you're using the sermon outline in your bulletin, we see the motivations for God's people to follow God's laws. And there's really two broad motivations, at least here in tonight's passage. One is the fact of God's omniscience. He knows all. There's no hiding anything from him. All of us, every single one of us, live our lives quorum deo, as R.C. Sproul was fond of saying, before the face of God. Why should we follow God's laws? What motivations does Israel have to follow these instructions? God's omniscience. He knows all. And the various regulations here recognize this. Chapter 22, verses 7 through 9, it's about stolen property under a neighbor's care. It happened under the neighbor's watch. Did the neighbor steal it? Well, no, somebody else did. Got any proof of that? Well, no. But the man doesn't believe him. And they can come before God to settle the dispute. Whomever God condemns, he pays double. In verse 11, there's, a, there's property or an animal gone missing, or it dies, or it's stolen. The neighbor who was watching it, he looks implicated, but he, he insists he did nothing wrong. He did not wrong his neighbor, and he will even swear an oath before God as a last resort measure to assert his innocence. Why? Well, it's a serious vow. So confident is he in God's knowledge of the matter that the wronged owner shall accept the vow and drop the matter knowing that if the other guy lied about it and took an oath under false pretenses, well, God sees all, and all are accountable to him, and that man who just lied and took an oath in God's name can answer to the Lord Almighty. And then in verse 11, an oath could be made in the name of the Lord if a man wishes to protest his innocence, and there's no evidence to settle the dispute. And again, that oath was considered to be so absolute, and the invocation of the divine name so solemn that an oath like this was to be accepted immediately as proof of innocence. The New Testament recognizes this principle too. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Every single human being, all our actions and deeds, all our thoughts are ultimately accountable, not just to our neighbor or some governing council, but to Almighty God himself, specifically Jesus Christ who is seated on the throne of judgment according to the Apostle Paul. God sees all, he knows all, and we are accountable to him. It's, a, it's simple, yes, but it is a good motivation to honor his laws. But then also, that idea we said we'd come back to in a few moments, chapter 22, verse 21 you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like, Israel. You've been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, like we sang earlier this evening. You've been ransomed, redeemed, and rescued by your God. You've been shown great mercy. It should be utterly unthinkable that you would become merciless and treat others in the miserable way that Egypt treated you. No, you recipients of mercy and loving kindness should show mercy and loving kindness likewise. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Isn't that what we pray? Well, of course, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, as we read earlier. The master forgives one servant 10,000 talents, 
According to one study, that's apparently over $226 million in today's money, 10,000 talents. But that servant won't forgive another man the 100 denarii that is owed him, which is roughly worth $11,000 in today's money. And he begins to choke him. Pay up. And the master finds out and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? God showed mercy to once enslaved Israel, rescued out of Egypt. How unthinkable it should be for you, Israel, to deal wickedly with others who were downtrodden like you once were for four centuries. So too for the church. You were once enslaved to sin and death. God has ransomed and redeemed you by the blood of his Son. The Lord Jesus has come and died and risen so that you are no longer slaves to sin, but you are dead to sin. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, pardoned, cleansed, and freed. How unthinkable it should be that we would treat others downtrodden in sin as we once were in a cruel or merciless manner. Oh, sure, the world does it all the time. Eat or be eaten, right? That's the mantra. Every man for himself. You want to get ahead in life? You need to make a way for yourself, regardless of who gets in your way. Not so for the redeemed. Not for the consecrated, distinct people of God who cherish life, who are committed to doing justly and care for the vulnerable and live in such a way because all of life is lived before God's face and because we have received such steadfast love and mercy. It could become a trite phrase, I know. But it is true. The gospel changes everything. I was once a slave and an outcast. How shall I then treat those who still are? The gospel changes everything. So that former slaves and outcasts care for the slaves and outcasts. And as one man said, those whose debts have been forgiven, forgive their debtors. And the found seek the lost so that the lost too might be found and saved. Truly, may we as God's people be shaped by God's word so that our lives are governed by God's ethics, publicly, confidently, unashamedly, and to the glory of God alone. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.